Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Lighthouse Beacon Podcast. My name is Rami Shami, and I'm your host today. A little background about our organization. We're located in Oakville, Ontario, but provide our services to the greater Toronto, Ontario. We offer facilitated peer support groups to help children, teens, and their families following a death in their family. However, family is defined because that's a very, very diverse terminology. Our groups are ongoing and open-ended with each offering of a family member an opportunity to participate in their own way. We launched these podcasts to bring a greater awareness to children's grief, especially the diversity within children's grief support in a demographic and a geography such as the greater Toronto area. But before we begin, it's important that we acknowledge the land that we are speaking on today, that I am living on today as a settler. I want to acknowledge the land that I'm standing on today's traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and as now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. I also want to acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit and the Williams Treaty signed with the multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. And humbly, I feel it's not enough just to recite a land acknowledgement. It's an important aspect of reflecting on what has happened for us to meet on this land today, to speak on this land today, the genocide, the harm, the trauma, the history, the colonialism that has been experienced by Indigenous peoples who have been living on this land and honoring and caring for it that date back over 10,000 years. My esteemed guest today is Andrea Warnick, whose exceptional work within Children's Grief Support has really helped to grow awareness, understanding, and accessibility within the field. And a bit of background on Andrea, She's a registered psychotherapist and a registered nurse whose passion lies in helping individuals, families, and communities support people of all ages who are grieving an illness or a death in their lives. With years of nursing and counseling experience, both in Canada and abroad, and a master's degree in thanatology, which is a study of dying and death, Andrea brings to her work a rare mixture of medical and psychosocial expertise. Andrea developed and teaches the five-day certificate program in children's grief and bereavement at SickKids Hospital, Center for Community Mental Health. She is also the lead content developer for kidsgrief.ca and Kids Grief for Educators. And once a month, Andrea hosts a free monthly forum through Canadian Virtual Hospice called Kids Grief Q&A, where she responds to questions from families and professionals from across the country about supporting grieving children and youth. Currently, she lives in Guelph, which is snowed under. And I don't know how much snow you get in Toronto. Sorry, in Guelph, because I know how much we got down here. And I worked in Guelph, as you know. Uh, From where she runs, Andrea Warnick Consulting, a group practice of over 25 therapists who provide grief counseling across Ontario and grief education across Canada. Welcome, Andrea. Thanks so much, Rami. It's lovely to be here. So when we speak about diversity... Uh, especially, uh, I shouldn't focus on Southern Ontario so much as this is, we are, you work nationally into the U.S. Uh, what are some of the aspects you're seeing in accessibility and barriers to accessibility of children's grief support, especially now during the COVID-19 pandemic? I think particularly in the COVID-19 pandemic, it's really been a learning curve for me in terms of the fact that like many people don't have access to reliable internet service. And this creates a huge barrier for people being able to access most supports because whether it's individual counseling, whether it's coming to a Q&A, whether it's going to a free grief group, like that depends for most people on being online right now. In the early days of the pandemic, I think I was kind of wowed by, you know, actually things are becoming much more accessible in some ways if you have access to a computer or to, you know, like an iPad and internet service. And then you can actually participate in more where you may be in a community that didn't have any formalized grief services. And then came the learning of, oh, wow, how many people in this country actually don't have access to reliable internet service? Um, You know, and and that really creates so many barriers for people. Yeah, you know, when when COVID, you know, really hit us and, and, schools just assumed or the board school boards has just assumed oh let's give everybody a laptop and assume that they it it wasn't necessarily a, the best solution it it created some accessibility but also highlighted a lot of the barriers uh to that just through technology just through 
you know, the, the, the lack of good. And I mean, I talked to some of my colleagues up in, you know, in Sudbury and in, in near North and they speak to those accessibility issues. What are some of the creative ways, Andrea, you've heard, or you've even, you know, engaged in to bridge those barriers in accessibility, especially when it comes to technology during COVID for grief support for children and, and, and adults, of course. I mean, one of the thing, one of the most basic things is when possible, I'm like, literally, I I get on the phone with people and kids included. Typically, I find most of the kids I work with, if we're doing virtual sessions, like they actually do want to see the person on the other end of the screen, where some of the adults I work with, like we'll just resort to the phone if we don't have reliable internet connection. With kids, sometimes I'm like, okay, we'll call each other and let's still have, you know, like our meeting, our screen meeting up and stuff like that. And we'll freeze in and out and everything else and we'll lose connection, but at least I can hear you the whole time. So, I mean, we do that. Um, One of the things, though, that I feel always is so important in grief is that we're also making sure that a community that is supporting kids who are grieving is well equipped to support that child. You know, so sometimes it might be because I do work with families who particularly when when we're in periods of online schooling and school needs to be virtual, who are like, my kid is not going to spend any more time on the screen. They can't. It's too much for them. Or they're just like, no, I'm not going to engage in doing support virtually. That's when what I'll do is often is say, you know what, probably one of the best things we can do to support you is even if we're talking on the phone to a parent. And when I reference parents, I'm talking about anybody who's raising a child who's grieving. So this might be foster mom, this might be auntie, really anybody who's raising a grieving child. And that's where, you know, what I'll do is try to just talk to a parent, maybe if, again, with the kid's permission, but maybe I'm talking to a counselor at the school. Maybe I'm talking to a teacher, but how can we make sure that there's some adults in this child's community who is well-versed in, you know, how to support a child? who is grieving. And so it may not be directly working with the children in this situation. That's a really interesting uh, tidbit because a lot of the work that I did in at Lighthouse for Grieving Children with this multicultural outreach project that we engaged in, you know, Andrea, that was the first line of engagement. It's not the children, right? You Like many times I heard, no, you can't talk to my child before I understand, you speak to me first. And then the under, the understanding, awareness, you know, I'm not really sure how the term, how I should phrase that, but the grasp of what grief is, how it presents itself, how it's experienced in those peoples, in those families, in those parents, isn't what, you know, someone like yourself would be able to show and teach. So can you speak a little bit further about how you brought that kind of awareness and education to those individuals so that we could have access to the children? Yeah. And quite often, I mean, in my situation, when I'm doing individual counseling, usually my first line of contact is families, like they're reaching out and I make it just a standard of my approach to let them know that even though they're reaching out because they want support for their kids, in fact, the best support for their kids is to make sure that they're well supported, you know, and they're able to create an environment to the best of their abilities. And I realize there's real limitations in this sometimes. Um, but that they're able to create an environment that's conducive to a healthy grief process for their kids, right? And this is something that I think for for a lot of adults, sometimes they skip over. They're like, don't worry about me. I just want to make sure my kids are okay. And, and then I'm trying to sort of let them know, in fact, the best thing, and there's research that's very clear about this too, um, you know, the best predictor in how their kids are going to be in this grief process is really dependent on how the parent is. I think sometimes when I reference that, parents think like, well, if I'm having a hard time, you know, then that's not going to be good for my for my child. And so I'm doing a lot of education about, I'm not talking about being okay in the way that you maybe were before this grief situation happened. I'm talking about you having a healthy grief process, you being able to model grief. This can include saying, yeah, when you talk about dad, like I am going to cry sometimes, or I am going to, it brings up sad feelings. You're not making me sad. I'm already sad because dad died, you know, and really modeling that for kids. Cause I find all too often what we do is we say to kids, like, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be mad and have big feelings and big behaviors and things like that, as long as you're safe. But as adults, the number of parents who say to me, I do all of my crying in the shower 
or in bed at night. So, you know, my child doesn't hear me. And that's where I'm trying to really um, work with the families to help them do a lot of the grief together and mo model a healthy grief process. And, and sometimes, to be honest, the technological barriers in this pandemic has been a bit conducive to that because I'll really be able to say to the parent, okay, we might not be able to do this online with your child. How about you and I, even if we're just getting on the phone, re really focus on this piece of how you create a healthy environment for your child's grief. So at times you'd be talking to the parents on the phone and doing a Zoom or what have you with the, with the children or child? More or less, not necessarily at the same time or anything, but if- No, no, I meant separately, like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. If I mean, within limitations, most teenagers I find are like, I don't necessarily want you actually doing stuff with my parents as well. But with more younger kids, um, I'm always trying to be quite family focused in terms of just making sure that I am interacting with parents. Sometimes if our internet connection is okay and we can do it, I mean, sometimes I'm just bringing the parents in for a parent, whoever it is, um, for the last few minutes of, of our Zoom session as well. Um, but I do find if, you know, if it's a situation that we just, we don't have the connection that we need for me to be able to do the work correctly with the kids, that it does open a door sometime for me to be able to just like work with the parent and coach them on supporting their kids. And the question and answer that we do through virtual hospice, I mean, this is very much a goal for it as well. We've very much designed this to be for parents and professionals so they can ask us questions and, and just sort of get some guidance um, on how do I support my kids around various issues related to grief. Well said. And you brought up, um, and I'd love your perspective on it, you brought up the, the idea of family. I mean, maybe it's just my limited view of Southern Ontario in that regard, because we're so diverse. And so I think it's the most diverse demographic of peoples in the world. What are, what do you, have you seen or experienced are some of the barriers within the definition of what a family is, especially in accessing uh, children groups? What a lot of the families I engage with um, have are structurally vulnerable, are single parent refugees, um, same-sex couples, they're experiencing a lot of barriers to accessing children's grief support for a multitude of reasons. What have you seen in that in regard to how we define family? I mean, I think often our definition of family is far too limited. And I quite often use as a reference point, there was this, um, I think it was in Arizona, but there was this study done on what they called the family bereavement program. And it's well documented. And one of the things that I think was very progressive about this, and this was probably 15 years ago now, but they ran children's group, teen grief group, and, and this was all when a parent had died, were very inclusive in terms of who could come to the caregiver group. So it might be a surviving parent. Um, it might be a foster parent. It might be the babysitter who spent a lot of time with the kids. And, and really what they did was they um, combined a sort of more traditional support group with psychoeducation. How do you model healthy grief? How do you respond to your kids' questions? How do you not over-parentify a child who might now be taking on, like, do we have enough money to pay the rent in all of these pieces as well? And, and to me, I think that that is such a healthy model where it's really opening up and saying any adult who plays a key role in this child's life is able to get access to this guidance and this support. But I also recognize that there's limitations where, you know, there's, there's many families where there may not be other adults. I think if you look at it historically as well, we used to live in much larger families intergenerationally and everything else. And now nuclear families tend to be quite small. There are many that are cut off from, especially if there's been long periods of struggle and things like that, you know, from other supports in the communities and things like that. And, and that's where I always go back to the incredible importance of making sure the organizations that kids tend to be in contact with, um, schools being a huge one, um, are well advised and supported in terms of being able to be a key player in supporting a child who's grieving. Because there might not be other adults who can actually be brought in in this child's individual life to support them and to learn about how do you support a grieving child. So we really want in those situations, quite often the teacher is the person that the kid's spending the most time with outside of family, sometimes more, right? And, and that's where I think that 
um, really making sure our schools, our family physicians, our ERs, our community organizations are well equipped in terms of providing grief support is so essential. I couldn't agree more because that's the first, almost the first point of touch point, the first point of engagement. It's also the place where many demographics of people actually engage, you know, family physicians, schools, and what have you, where they're the customary barriers aren't necessarily as as entrenched. Are you finding, or maybe I should, this is probably a loaded question, are schools and, and family physicians and emergency departments and hospitals, are they there yet? Are we, are they well equipped with the language? Yeah. That's yeah, we've, the, especially, yeah. Ahead, we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. It was interesting. I was reading over some research. This was probably like seven years ago or so now. Um, But the Children and Youth Grief Network has done a phenomenal job amalgamating all kinds of research about supporting grieving kids. And some of the reviews I was doing and everything was really a lot of people were saying it needs to be our healthcare providers. Our healthcare providers on the front line need to be, you know, well-versed in children's grief and be able to sort of like let families know and guide families. And there were just a few studies, Rami, that actually went to the health providers themselves. So our family physicians, our nurses and everything else, and they pretty much unanimously were saying, that's nice, we have zero training in children's grief, right? So we're not any more informed than anybody else's in children's grief. And that's one of the things I really try to transmit to the parents that I work with too, and the families, like this is not, not knowing how to do this with your kids is not a failure on your part in any way. You could read all the parenting books in the world and there's almost never a chapter on how do you parent into death or how do you support your kids when death happens, right? Like we've admitted that part. And this is true. I hope it doesn't sound too harsh to say, but I think we're in an incredibly grief illiterate death phobic society. And that permeates every aspect of our society, our institutions, our healthcare, even our palliative care units. And and this is where I think that the knowledge gap is so huge. And to me, it's really sad because sure, 20 years ago, maybe we didn't have the research and we didn't have the literature and the clinical knowledge of what is best practice to, to support kids who are grieving, who have somebody dying or somebody suddenly died in their life. But we've come a long way in that regard. There's actually a lot of literature out there and there's just a complete gap where it hasn't been transmitted to families, but to our healthcare institutions, to our education institutions. And so while we've got the research and we know best practice, most people who are supporting kids who are grieving are not connected or aware of that information at all. So the million dollar question, why not? I, I think there's a reluctance from some people to, you know, just around death and dying, you know, and this is me just sort of pondering. I mean, one of the things I'll often say, because people will identify in some of the trainings I do, like I'm uncomfortable with concept, the concept of death and dying and mortality and everything. And on some level, I think for most humans, there's some existential discomfort there. You know, why wouldn't there be? I think more of the exception is from people who are like, no, I'm pretty at peace with it. I'm pretty comfortable with this. Um, but, but I think also that, you know, there's a real um, concern often when it comes to supporting grieving kids that I'm going to mess it up or I'm going to make it harder. And I think there's also, and I think this is part of the challenge and complexity of grief work with kids, is quite often people are incredibly well-intended, but misguided because their instinct is like, I want to protect the kids. So we're not going to tell them that, you know, grandma's got cancer and will die from it. Or we're not going to tell them that dad's death was actually suicide. We're going to say it was something else. And, And typically, in my experience, it's coming from a good place. But it's misguided and it doesn't realize, and most people just don't realize that actually they could be creating more complications for their kids. So thank you for that, Andrea. I mean, in the work that I I do in in hospice palliative care and in long-term care, I see that aspect of a lack of literacy in grief in in so many different, how can I say, engagements, professionals. I I wish we could teach it or bring it forth to even, if we can't do it in palliative care, then how are we expecting in all in all these other all these other settings, and especially even now in long-term care, which is really palliative care in a in a 
in a long-term setting. So can we speak about some of that, um, how we can navigate some of that, and that bridge that gap and that understanding and awareness, and even especially as I feel like COVID-19 has highlighted and brought forth and exasperated uh, those, uh, those gaps? You know, I do think that there are in any of those institutions, typically, or organizations, typically there's a few people who actually are pretty hungry for information about grief. And quite often I find it can be a lonely experience because they're going against the grain of a lot of other people around them and just society at large. But I, I really see education as being a key component here of helping our organizations create healthier environments for people who are grieving. I couldn't agree more in terms of long-term care. I think of even my personal experiences with family members in long-term care. I'm like, this is unbelievable. Like nobody actually has information about grief or palliative care, or at least in the experiences I had. Um, and that's where I think it's really important that, um, you know, there is opportunities for accessible as much as possible education in these environments. And I do find quite often, I see this in schools a lot too, if there's a few people who are like, yeah, this is something we really want to know more about, I find sort of a train the trainer model can be pretty powerful too, where people within the organizations can identify, I want to learn more, I want to take a lead. So making sure we're finding ways to provide them with trainings and support around doing that. Even how do we do grief debriefs when a resident dies in a long-term care home? And what we saw in COVID is so many long-term care homes had so many residents die so fast. The people in the front lines were dealing with their own fears and worries. And even stigma is what we heard from a lot of people in terms of their communities because of the work that they were doing and their exposures to COVID. And there wasn't even time to process one death before the next came, before the next came. And I do commend, I know a lot of long-term care homes who have reached out and said, we need support. We need grief debriefs. We need psychoeducation about grief to support the people on the front lines. Um, but there's huge gaps. And that's where I think for people within organizations, if it's something that they feel is more needed to really sort of take a lead and saying, okay, how can we get this? We want this. Um, or just individually doing training. And there is a lot of, I do find podcasts such as this, right? Like there's a lot of free resources out there now as well. Um, it's just usually about figuring out how do we find them? And, and that's where I think though, those of us who are doing the work and everything too, making sure we're creating accessible resources for people and, and letting people know that it's there. I think that's part of our job and our responsibility um, and figuring out ways that we can bring down some of those barriers that exist. Very much so. And just reflecting on when you were speaking about long-term care, oftentimes, if not all the time, long-term care uh, residents are older adults, right? And I think one piece that was missed that I saw with the with the volume of people that died in long term care as a result of COVID, let alone just you know life 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 journeys, these are often grandparents, and the impact that it that death has on children is I think oftentimes going unnoticed or maybe not unnoticed but unacknowledged, right? Because mm -hmm. I see those families come to our long term care facility. Nobody's, nobody's able to talk to the children. Usually it's, it's the parents, but the children are, and sometimes they, they echo in the, you know, in, in the side quarters of the hallways, talking to someone like myself, you can see the children are affected that it's, you know, that it's a, a significant loss in their lives, but it goes unacknowledged. So oftentimes I'm, I wanted to ask you, do you find, or have you come across that in, in your work, especially as I maybe characterize it as somewhat of a marginalization of children's grief, depending on who died, right? Absolutely. I mean, I often refer to um, children, I'd say particularly young children, but as being disenfranchised grievers, where they're sort of pushed to the sidelines. And I find it particularly when we get into young kids, people are quick to say, oh, they're too young, they won't understand. And yet this is going to be such an important part of their story. And we underestimate how much kids can understand and how affected they are by grief of a grandparent's death, anybody close to them. And, and that's where, you know, I'd love to see, Rami, a day where it's a standard of practice, whether it's a PSW working with a resident closely in a long-term care home, whether it's an oncologist who's just diagnosed somebody at a cancer hospital in an oncology ward. 
that the question is asked, are there children in your life who are going to be affected by this situation? Not do you have kids? Do you have grandkids? They may not, but they may be the beloved uncle of 17 nieces and nephews, right? And so not making assumptions about who's going to be affected, just are there children who are going to be affected by your diagnosis, by this death? And I think the reason that question's not asked more, and, and there is some literature that suggests this in healthcare, is that quite often healthcare providers are so worried that they're not going to have, they're not going to know how to guide people anyway, because they don't have the education around it. But that's where I think it's completely okay to say, you know what, this isn't something I have a lot of experience with, but I know there's some great resources out there. Would you like me to sort of just connect you with some of the resources? So somebody in the family has access to this. You know, this is where if a grandparent is dying or anybody elderly in a long-term care home, I'd love it to be asked before the death happens too, as well. Like, are there kids who would want to be here? It's okay to have kids at the bedside, as long as the dying person's open to that. Whereas I think there's this myth where people think it'll be traumatizing for kids to be at the bedside. I'm often saying to people, you know, histor historically, kids were always at the bedside because death was happening in the home. Not only was death happening in the home, our after death rituals were happening in the home. In many parts of the world where I've worked and traveled and those pl the places that I haven't too, death is still happening in the home and kids are there. And so I think we've had this really unhealthy relationship with death where we let kids watch very violent death on TV all the time. And yet when grandma's dying, we're really hesitant to bring them to the bedside and explain right? what happens in a natural <laughs> right? death. Yeah. And, and this is where it comes down to those pieces about, you know, like, Grandma's not dying because she's not eating and drinking. She's not eating and drinking because she's dying. Like teach them about death. This is one thing we're all gonna be contending with. So, you know, I think that, I guess going back to your question, for me, my hope is that we really come to a place where even if people feel like, I don't have a ton of experience or knowledge in this, I'm at least gonna show up and ask if there's kids who are affected. And I at least know a couple of resources I can connect them with if there are kids involved. And, and I just got excited there because that's that's exactly, we, you know, I mean, even in mainstream movies and TVs, you see violent death and kids are exposed to it. They're exposed it in cartoons and Marvel, what have you. Um, I hope I don't get sued there. But then on the other hand, let's not have them come to the bedside because it could be traumatizing. So, so well said. Now, a question that I wanted to put forth to you, Andrea, what about those individuals, demographics or families or clients, however you define them, that say, you know, just they shield their children from death and, and especially the bedside or even grieving because they themselves in their communities and their cultures and their religion, however, however they express it, I've, there's so many ways I've heard it, don't feel it's appropriate to expose children. And they themselves don't talk about death because it's part of how they navigate as a community or as a culture, as a people, how they navigate grief. Have you experienced that? And how do you traverse those? And how do you work with them? This is where I think the concept of cultural humility is so important. You know, I mean, typically I will ask families right off the bat, usually before I even meet their kids, you know, are there certain traditions, rituals, beliefs that I should know about um, to help support you as a family? And then some of the work, and this is never clear cut, but then some of the work is, you know, how much of this is a tradition or a ritual, you know, that's been passed down um, and how much of it I often will refer to, um, you know, you spend a couple of generations in, I shouldn't say North America, because I actually feel Mexico has a lot more healthy traditions and rituals around death and dying, but Canada and the States, you know, and, and then there's some level of that grief illiteracy and death phobia that permeates as well. And, and that's where sometimes I'm working with families to sort of weed that out. And of course, we want to respect the traditions and the rituals. Um, and this is where sometimes I'll say like, okay, let's see if we can talk to like sort of the eldest living person in your family and actually go back and like, what do they remember of how it was when they were young? Right, because quite often we've lost some of the more healthy parts of the traditions. And so really, I mean, I just bring to it curiosity and exploration and, you know, I, I will let people know and I'll be honest and I'll say, you know, I, I may be concerned because I feel like there's not an outlet for you or your child around your grief. But of course, we want to do it in a way that's respectful 
and in line with beliefs and traditions. But I'll give you an example, even in my own family, Rami, where my dad died. My dad was Irish, but like a number of generations removed, but yet very Irish, I realized when I spent time in Ireland. Um, you know, and he was very much sort of like, have the party, have a wake when I die. Like, I just want it to be all celebration, right? And we'll see this a lot, lots of celebration of life in like obituaries and stuff. But, and yet when you look at a traditional Irish wake, there was all kinds of mourning and keening and washing the body before it turned into sort of the typical, like what we think of as let's just celebrate. You know, I, I'm fortunate to spend time every year teaching in Louisiana as well. And I think the New Orleans jazz funeral is just like one of the most beautiful rituals that I've witnessed. Yet we typically think of it as the celebrating in the street. But actually, there's really sad jazz music being played on the procession to the cemetery. Different jazz music, which is symbolic of the breaking of the physical bonds as that body's being interred before it moves into the celebration. So that's where I just like, I, I, I want to explore and be curious because it's sometimes it's that we're only holding on to parts of the traditions, but not looking at the bigger part of the traditions. And I actually find in many cultures of many people that I've worked with, um, you know, as I learn about their traditions, quite often um, there are aspects of those traditions that are very in line with creating a healthy grief process. And sometimes we've only, you know, we're only like taking 10% of the ritual at this point, and we've lost a bunch of the rest of the ritual. And that's where I find many families very open to like learning from other people in their community as well and, and exploring with me. Oh, beautifully said. And, you know, we've just hired, um, uh, an exceptional individual by the name of Danielle Lobo. And she speaks about ancestry and ancestral grief practices and what have you. And then you mentioned something that uh, we've employed at Lighthouse for Grieving Children, the concept of cultural humility as possibly differentiated from cultural competence and cultural sensitivity, right? Mm -hmm. Which have a lot of biases and stereotyping and narrowing of perceptions. Can you speak a little bit to what is cultural humility and how you employ it in your work, especially as it relates to children's grief? Absolutely. And I think it's a concept that I really, I really like because I think it leaves opening for the fact, for some vulnerability, right? So we can't know everything about different cultures and all of the different overlays. And any one family that I'm working with, even within that one family, there's going to be so many variations of beliefs and rituals and culture right within that one family. And, and this is where I do want to say, like, I, I think the cultural competence is still an important, I, I think cultural, for me, cultural competence and cultural humility work together. But with the language of cultural competence, it always makes me feel like, I, like I'm about to do something wrong or offend in some way. And I do think you know, there's if I'm working within a certain indigenous community, there is a need for some competence where I'm going to learn and ask about the beliefs and the traditions and what can I do and should I know in order to best support. But that humility aspect is being able to be open to co-learning and being curious. And actually, sometimes I am going to mess it up. Right. And I might not say the right thing and being able to be vulnerable in that, because what worries me is that I, I think there's so much hesitancy around vulnerability um, and concerns, again, coming from a good place, but about getting it wrong and offending that sometimes people just don't show up. And, and that's where I think there's called the concept of cultural humility leaves so much room for, yes, show up. Sometimes you are going to get it wrong. You know, and, and that's where you apologize, you have humility, but you learn and, and you really are connected in that. So that for me, I mean, like sort of the competence and the humility, I weave them together. And, you know, I give one example of, I worked in Saudi Arabia for a number of years. And before I moved to Saudi Arabia, I, I was a pediatric oncology nurse already, but I had shaved my head for a fundraiser. Um, and all kind, of, lots of nurses did it, parents did it, kids did it. And um, I decided to do the same thing 
in Saudi Arabia, not realizing that in the Quran, like women really aren't supposed to shave their heads. And like, that's not an easy fix, Rami, like when you've shaved your head, right? And then you realize that like, so there was a whole lot of room for humility in that situation. You know, and I actually found, I mean, the family is very lovely. The kids still want me to shave my head again. And I was like, yeah, no. But, and, and that's where it is really like being humble, being apologetic, learning, <laughs> not doing it again. Um, but I think for me, that was one of the times where I've had to embody cultural humility more than, I mean, I've done, <laughs> had to do it many times, but that was a big one. <laughs> I could only imagine. I mean, my my mother's from Lebanon, my dad's from Israel, and I could only, I have lots of, yeah, I could only, only begin to imagine. And you bring forth this aspect of this constant learning and the idea of personal culture where however someone expresses themselves comes through them. It can You can have this entire piece of cultural competence about a demographic of people, but it's the individual and how they express it, especially in children, especially now in intergenerational children, children that are first, second, third generation Canadians and how they've taken, you know, however they've been taught and funneled it through their own self-expression as we focus a lot on children's self-expression, autonomy and and self-direction. And then you add the impact of social media, which I feel is the biggest piece of cultural competence in their influence and who we are and who children are. It's very hard to come from structured models, right? So that curiosity you're talking about, the learning, the constant learning, the malleability, the getting it wrong, the vulnerability. Yeah, so well said, uh, Andrea. Now, I'm going to bring it back to COVID because it seems like everything comes back to COVID. It's so prevalent right now. And, and it's so interesting, Andrea, what's going to happen in the next five to 10 years of the impact and traumatization and, and experience of loss and grief due to COVID-19, especially on our, our children, right? And, and, and our youth in that regard. You spoke to the creativity that's needed to, and, and that's part of the culture humility piece, the creativity that's probably needed in breaking down barriers or overcoming barriers in supporting such a diversity of, of children as a result from the COVID-19 barriers that have been created. You spoke to some of the creativity in the actual support, games and Minecraft and what have you. Can you expand on that piece in and of itself to break down those barriers and support children uh, using the media we have while having a pandemic that's still, you know, for lack of a better word, raging? Yeah. And to, I mean, really expand on that. I think this is a time where we've had to be tremendously creative because of all the barriers that, you know, to connection, like human connection. And so one of the concerns for me around COVID has been not having kids at the bedside, right? Not having kids being able to necessarily attend funeral. And I shouldn't say just kids, because this is true of many adults too. Kids already had barriers due to being at the bedside and things like that. But there were certainly more with COVID just because of the decreases of numbers that we can have. And that can complicate a grief process. And, and that's where I find we've really had to be creative in terms of like, what does it look like to keep people connected while somebody's dying and maybe you can't go into the long-term care home to even see great uncle Sam um, or after someone's died and you can only have a 10 person memorial or funeral or burial. And so that's where, you know, we've really been using a lot of ways. There's actually this great resource by Good Grief in the U.S., which is specifically about doing funerals in pandemics for kids, which I give to adults across the board, too, because it really, it talks about, you know, how can we have home rituals? And this could be a home ritual. You could have three people in a living room having a memorial to someone. And I think ritual is so powerful, and it's something that's really... Um, it's a big part of my work is helping people because many of the people I work with don't necessarily have rituals handed to them in terms of how do we stay connected? How do we actually, you know, keep connected with our person who's died, not only like weeks after, but years after, what does that look like? And so I've spent a lot of time with families trying to figure out, okay, if you can't be at the ritual that you would typically have gone to, what does it look like to create it at home? And I think that this is a really big piece of what we need to do for families is help them figure out, like, how can I still, with all of these barriers, have a healthy grief process? And and I think ritual plays a huge role in that. And I can see that very much so. A lot of the individuals that I support have almost suspended 
their funerals, their celebration of life, you know, what have it been, because they want everybody there, right? And COVID has mm-hmm. prevented that. It's created quite a barrier of having these these sorts of gatherings. And then when you speak about home rituals, uh, what was the website of, is it Good Grief? I mean, it's I'd love to grief. plug it here. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's good. It's Good Grief. It's an organization in the States. And I think it's literally called um, so Having Funerals in Times of a Pandemic. So it'll be it'll be an easy find, but I'll send you that link too. I, yeah, I, no you know, I think it's so important. I, I mean, for me, it kind of gets me excited too because I think, you know, in some parts of the country, we are seeing a resurgence in sort of the home funeral, um, you know, tendency and things like that too. And I think that when we talk about equity and accessibility and everything, one of the things for me that I really struggle with in this work in general is just how expensive it is to die. And, and to have the rituals and everything else. And so, you know, I, I do see that some of the work I'm doing in the pandemic in which people are bringing more of the rituals and the memorials and the shivas and all of the different, you know, traditions into the home. My hope is that this will push us further along sort of a reclaiming of some of this in our lives as well. So people can do it in a way that there's not so many financial barriers as well. And kids are in the homes and so that they're more naturally a part of all of these rituals as well. The kids are in the homes. Now, when you speak about healthy grieving, and then we have aspects of healthy grieving and ritual and ceremony, and then you have a pandemic that says that kind of puts up barriers. I think what you're speaking to is a way to to cross those barriers very much so. And what do you feel like would it be the impact on children if you know, I, I, I never try to put a positive spin on COVID, but it has done a lot for us in many ways, right? For example, you know, bring in possibly more of the, you know, the death care and, and what have you home. What do you feel might be the impact on children if this starts to be actually become more mainstream? I know my partner speaks to it uh, a great deal that it's becoming more strain, mainstream, this whole aspect of, of dying at home and, and funerals at home and ritual, what have you. What do you feel would be the impact on children if, if that actually starts to gain quite a bit of momentum, or do you feel like it's carrying some momentum now? I, I do feel like it is carrying some momentum. And I do think that, um, you know, both in having people sort of die at home and having some home rituals and things like that. I mean, I feel like that's starting to pick up a bit through COVID. I feel like what's picking up a lot through COVID is just the words and the language around grief being more part of our discourse you know, in Canada, in the United States. And I think that actually goes a long way towards enhancing our grief literacy, which will absolutely benefit kids. And I think the thing for kids is like, you know, they've been relegated to the sidelines. But what I know about kids is if they're not able to be a part of these aspects, very natural aspects of their life, typically they imagine it to be way worse than it actually is. And, and I do think that if more of this is being done at home, and even for the rituals that aren't, that are for more inclusive with kids, never forcing, but certainly inviting, you know, and exploring any of their fears and preparing them and things like that, I think it makes death less scary for kids. Not with a goal of it not being scary at all, because again, I think some of that existential angst is completely natural as humans around death and dying, but less scary. And I think that that goes a long way towards ultimately making us a society that has a better relationship with death. And do you feel in any way, Andrea, that COVID-19 has an impact on children and bringing a greater awareness of grief, loss, death, the literacy, the language? Do you feel like it's, it's brought that forth more? Because they're exposed to it everywhere at schools and what have you and the numbers and how many people are dying. And do you feel yeah. it's actually maybe catalyzed that momentum? I, I think it has. And, and like you, Rami, I don't like to downplay sort of all of the incredibly hard stuff and the loss and the grief that has come with COVID. But I absolutely do think, I mean, those things can coexist, right? Like it can be really hard. There can be a ton of loss and grief and there can be benefits. There can be growth that happens. I mean, that's one of the things that I also know about humans and doing growth. Typically, it happens through the hardest situations, not for everybody, but a lot of our human growth, like when we talk about concepts like post-traumatic growth, you know, it's it's growth coming through the situation we would wish had never happened in the first place. 
you know, and, and I absolutely do think that there's benefits for kids that have come as a result of this. I think there's a lot of anxiety that's been stirred up for kids as well, right? And we need to be really proactive on giving them tools to navigate that and everything and have a good eye out for that. But I think for a lot of kids opening up conversations about death, dying, grief, and, and even using what I've really encouraged and we've done in a number of schools too is this concept of actually using COVID as an opportunity to teach kids grief literacy by talking about what might otherwise be disenfranchised grief. You're not being able to be on the football team. You're not being able to be in the school choir. You know, the graduation that you didn't get the way you thought or hoped or had dreamed that you would get. All of those losses, I think, are really important to help kids actually be able to grieve those as well. And if we can do that, we're actually giving them some skills that they can use for other losses that they're going to experience in their life as well. Wow. Wow. Um, is that in, in person, not in person, but one-on-one -on -one sessions that that education and awareness, is it in something you've posted on your website? It could be in virtual hospitals. How is that being communicated and shared? Yeah, we actually started a few schools reached out and just said, like, we want these presentations. And so we started just doing them virtual, but we have pretty much manualized it. Um, I've got to be honest, I'm like not tech savvy and not like I haven't really posted it anywhere. But I mean, people are welcome just to sort of email us like we've actually people can use it in their schools. Um, there's like a whole manual on like sort of how to have the conversations walks people right we call it grovid 19. Grovid? Grovid. That's awesome. But that's where it is just weaving in like the loss and the grief and the growth and knowing that for any one kid it might be that one of those way outweighs the other. You know, but being able to use it as an opportunity to enhance their grief literacy in a way that will hopefully serve them well throughout the rest of their lives. Because, you know, I mean, I love that Grovid. Yeah, Grovid 19. Oh, that's brilliant. See, see how teens' minds are so creative like, in that regard. But I couldn't agree more because COVID has hit, I mean, actually disproportionately has hit so many demographics and it's, it's, uh, it's impersonal and it hits, you know, everybody in that regard. I wanted to circle back in terms of possibly some of the questions and answers that come up in uh, in the kids' grief Q and A for Canadian Virtual Hospice. Uh, what has what what have you heard, especially with respect to grieving and COVID and and what have you? We've heard a lot of questions that are very similar to what you and I have been talking about, such as you know person is dying, kids can't physically be there, what are some of the ways that we can actually prepare them and keep them connected, right? Really going for that creativity. Maybe it's making a hug on a piece of a sheet and then the hug is going into the ICU. Um, maybe it's doing voice memos back and forth, like helping kids find ways that they can still feel connected when they're not physically able to be there. And then a lot are the ones that, because typically I find with the kids grief Q&A, we've got half of the people who professionally encounter kids who are grieving. So our nurses, physicians, social workers, um, and half are families. And it, the questions can literally be like, we've recently had an ALS diagnosis. How do we tell our child? Or, you know, we recently had a child killed in an accident and we're supporting our other child. And, you know, how does this look in terms of, you know, what we should be talking about, how much we should be talking about and things like that. Um, and, and certainly we've seen, and you know, quite a few COVID questions as well. And that's where I find the creativity piece and thinking outside the box of how we've been doing this um, really helps and informs a lot of the answers and the responses that I give families. Yeah, I can only imagine. And I can't help, Andrea, but acknowledge the ease, the grace, the comfort. I mean, you're in a professionalist field, but the the grief, sorry, the grace and comfort with which you speak the language of grief it just it's it actually brings me at ease although i, I feel i'm relatively at ease in in these kinds of di discussions and being at the bedside but i can't imagine what it does for others you know who are may have some anxiety and phobia towards death and dying and grief uh, especially discussions and and that just speaks to i guess in one way the challenge that being in the pandemic has separated us and not being able to be in person but even here now over like a, a zoom like a zoom like call it's 
us as as who provide the support that that have to have some measure of comfort with it to put others at it but like somatically right i can feel like the comfort in your language in the way you speak to it can that be taught can that be taught like the way you your demeanor your comfort it's it's by osmosis i feel it right can that be taught to other professionals and frontline service providers and physicians and what have you so that they can exude and create that atmosphere or a buffer that is felt by others around them that that brings them that sense of comfort rather than just like the literacy isn't just verbal right it's energetic yeah. it's feeling right can that be taught andrea to a degree i think it can i think that you know for some people their discomfort is heavily influenced by a knowledge gap and when you fill that knowledge gap sometimes i'm telling them i'm just reinforcing the things that they're already doing and they're like oh okay i'm on the right i'm on the right track and so their comfort level goes up and so you know if if that's the situation absolutely but there's some people who have like very significant grief histories themselves and unprocessed grief, unsupported grief, and or just are really uncomfortable and, and terrified. And, you know, there's probably a whole lot of interpersonal work in those situations that would need to be done before that person is specifically going to be well equipped to feel really comfortable. And that's where, you know, I was doing a training for a school board the other day. Um, and I specifically said, you know, like if you've got teachers going into a class who have to do a death notification and let them know that somebody's died in the community, and this is a teacher who's deeply uncomfortable with death or has all kinds of unprocessed grief themselves, you want another professional going in there who's going to be able to support them. Whereas you've got other educators who will be not fine. I don't think anyone's ever fine having to do that, but far more comfortable going in and doing that. And and that's where I do think going back to sort of um, when we look at organizations, ideally having some people within the organization who are like, not only am I relatively comfortable, because one of the things I'm often encouraging people is, you know, get comfortable with your discomfort. I mean, that is part of doing this work as well. But some people are like hungry for more. You know, and that's where within these institutions or organizations, if they can self-identify and get the training, they're going to be the best equipped to to work with their peers and their colleagues. And when you're talking about um, the training piece, and this is a, a, a somewhat, I feel, a delicate discussion in this piece itself, only because I'm not necessarily credentialed in grief support and what have you, but I do a, so much of it in hospice, palliative care and what have you. And you spoke about building capacity, you know, in schools, in communities, in, 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 and you look at a demographic such as those experiencing structural vulnerability, nobody's going in there to talk to them and support them in grief, let alone somebody who's master's mm-hmm. trained or, or what have you. Is it okay that we build capacity that is not necessarily on a exceptionally professional level? Because some, like, this is what I've heard from in the field, something is better than nothing. Right. You know, you, you know, you don't have anybody going into Seton House and providing, you know, grief support for for individuals who are experiencing homelessness. And maybe I said that just threw that off something better than nothing. But that's what I've, I've heard, you know, in some communities saying, well, we don't have anybody in our demographic of people and we don't really resonate with who you are and what you look like. So can you show us and we'll do something? But that lends itself to, you know, misinformation. So can I ask you your thought? Because that's one way to bridge the capacity barrier, the gap barrier, especially when it comes to children's grief. Can I ask you about that? What your thoughts are on that, Andrea? Absolutely. You know, I think that for me, it's about far more than something being better than nothing. Grief is such a human experience. The majority of grief is not pathology. It is a natural response to a significant loss. And my general approach is that if we only relegate grief to people with advanced degrees, we are in big trouble as humanities, as humanity. It it just, it won't work. Like we're all going to be experiencing this, albeit to very different degrees. And, And that's where I think absolutely we should be resourcing people within organizations who know the people in the organizations and work together as peers with the capacity to provide good grief support. There's so many myths and misinformation out there. And, and that's where I think, you know, you just um, want to ensure that we're doing general grief support and that hopefully those people have a good clinical eye 
just as to, I shouldn't say a good clinical eye, um, but just that there's sort of clarity around when we're getting into trauma processing, which you really want somebody trained in trauma processing to do that, um, or if there's more of a need for more individual grief support. But I also recognize like many people in Canada aren't going to have access to that. Right. So from that perspective, like doing some psychoeducation and just really building up people's capacity to bear witness to one another's suffering, that's more than education, right? Like that's showing up and actually giving people the space and opportunity to share some of the hardest stuff that's happened in their lives. That can very much be taught. And then just knowing again that if, you know, we're getting into trauma symptoms and things like that, if the resources are available, being like, this is somebody who might need more support, right? And if the resources aren't available, you've still benefited them by doing some psychoeducation and really creating an environment where they can actually be doing some of their grief with you. I especially appreciated when you spoke about it as a natural human process. And I, I wonder, I find that, I feel is personally, that is one of the biggest barriers to children grieving, to teens grieving, to youth grieving. So supporting them is this pathologizing of grief. And then in the pathologizing, you only need these people that can support you or help you or help you recognize it when it's a very natural. And, and you know, you talk about ancestry, you talk about intergenerational you talk about Mexico and how they, you know, speak to grief, the day of dead, what have you. There's there's a very natural component to it. And I think that is part of the breaking down of the barriers in, in that regard. And that's some of the work we're trying to do at Lighthouse for Grieving Children is building capacity in demographics of people in communities in the in the education piece so that they can, you know, for this probably isn't appropriate to say it, and I'm saying it on a podcast, but for them to serve their own, right? That's how they say yeah. it. we want teach us to serve our own right? Yeah. Instead of you coming in, show us, teach us, bring it at awareness, you know, highlight what we do, right? In, in that regard. So that is, yeah. that is the way I think in, in many ways. You've been so gracious with your time today and you might've, uh, you know, we've had some technical difficulties, but you're so, you're so easy to talk to Andrea in, in the regard of this language of, of grief and bereavement. It's absolutely been wonderful. Is there anything that you would like to share with us just from your personal perspective of what we, reflecting on what we talked about today, to leave us with in terms of our discussion? Yeah, I think the one thing to me that I just sort of want to acknowledge too, you know, I, I quite often feel like in grief work, you shouldn't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel, right? And that it's important. I, I love when I work with organizations who are like Lighthouse, right? Who've created just so many amazing resources around grief and bereavement, but it's important to not be territorial, but like share. And, and that's where I find just learning from each other. I mean, I know one of the things really what inspired us doing the kids grief Q and A through Canadian virtual hospice, and we still got a long way to go, but is in the UK, there's a number of organizations in the UK who have actually jumped a lot of the geographic barriers because they have kids grief help phones, right? And these are actually not for kids to call themselves. Therefore, any adult who encounters a grieving child, again, it could be the teacher, it could be somebody who's working at, you know, big sisters, big brothers, any, it could be a parent, right? To call and talk to somebody who's trained some of the organizations, it's volunteers, some are professionals. Like to me, I, I mean, that's always been a dream for me that we would have in Canada, that where you are, and it doesn't even depend at that point on your internet service anymore. If you have access to a phone, you have access to somebody who's well-informed around children's grief, you know? And, and I totally admit that doing a once a month Q&A isn't filling that gap. It's just hopefully our first step to getting there. But I, I think that is my dream for Canada because that touches on so many of the pieces that we've talked about in terms of barriers around families and who's in contact with the kids and internet connections and do you have supports in your community and things like that. And, and I hope that there's a day, Rami, where we can have a conversation and know that something like that is a resource right across our country for anybody who's encountering a child who's grieving. I hope so too. I hope so too. And I, I thank you for being on the podcast, but I think because that's bringing a, a greater awareness to these resources and, and what have you, and, and hopefully people can benefit from that, uh, from those resources. Thank you so much for your time today, Andrea. It's been an absolute gift. 
Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Rami. If you want more information on uh, Andrea's counseling services or her group practice, visit andreawarnick.com. If you want more, more information on Lighthouse's programming, visit www.grievingchildrenlighthouse.org. My name is Rami Shami, and this has been the Lighthouse Beacon Podcast. Stay safe, everyone. Mm-hmm.